All right, let's get started. We're in the book of Acts, as I think everybody knows. Um, last week, we uh, this week's actually kind of a continuation of last week. Last week, Peter and John were going to temple. Uh, it was kind of our first time we got to see them since the uh, kind of big Pentecost moment when the Holy Spirit came down. You had this kind of big explosive moment in the church. And Acts 3 is the first time we really get to see them since then. We get to see if there's been kind of a fall off from that moment or where they're at. And Peter and John are going to the temple and they have this really kind of interpersonal moment with this beggar where they, um, they see this beggar and they make this kind of prolonged eye contact and they see something in him that nobody else sees and, and they, uh, they heal him. And so he goes into the temple with him. And this is kind of a big moment because the thing that follows could not have been predicted by Peter and John because they didn't know if this guy would get up and go into the temple with him, if he'd get up and go get a job, go home and tell his family or just go to the bar and have a beer. We didn't know what this guy would do. But he, uh, but Peter and John uh, heal him. They pray for him and heal him and he gets up and follows him into the temple. So everybody in the temple sees what happened. And this couldn't have been a moment that Peter and John were expecting because they didn't know how the guy would react. And so it's kind of neat to look at everything that happens because Peter's just doing this off the cuff. This isn't something he went in with like a pre-scripted message. He's just got one ready. And so he notices that the crowd is responding to this guy because everybody's seen him because the guy sat there every single day, you know, begging. And so the crowd's responding and Peter preaches this message to the crowd and we find out in our chapter today that about 5,000 people, or about 5,000 men, we don't have any women, uh, in that time there wouldn't have been very many women in the temple. Uh, women weren't really allowed in the temple very often, so it was most likely 5,000 men that were saved. And then uh, it shook things up, and Peter and uh, John are taken before the Sanhedrin. We're going to talk a little bit about what the Sanhedrin was today, and uh and had to kind of make uh, an answer for themselves for what happened. And we're really going to find two things in this passage that we're going to dig out. It's actually a lot like last week. We're going to pull out another one of our kind of fundamental tensions that show up in this book. I said we were going to do that pretty much through this entire book. Anytime one of these tension points pop up, we're going to talk about it and bring it out and discuss what that means to us. But also we're going to talk about uh, our subject for today that they really unfold, which is boldness. Now this tension that shows up here um, shows up really in all three of the Peter's preached three sermons so far. He the one on when they came out of the upper room on Pentecost, uh, the the one that they preached the day before to the people in the temple who saw the guy that was healed, and then he kind of speaks before the Sanhedrin here, and part of this comes from the talk he has with his people afterwards, and and. The same tension shows up in all three, but I decided to wait until now so we could kind of build a little bit of a body of evidence and, and uh, build a little better case for it. But um, let's go ahead and go to the next slide. The first tension shows up, so these are three, path, three scriptures, one from each of Peter's sermons. The first one says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. That's only the first half of the verse. The second half shows up in a second. The next one from the second sermon, the one the day before. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And then our passage today is going to be said, For truly against your holy servant, 
whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, were together, were gathered together to do what your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So we're getting this picture, and every single time Peter preaches, he talks about this being the plan of God. That this everything that happened to Jesus was not an accident. It wasn't a shock. It wasn't um, something that snuck up on anybody. This was known for a long time. This was God's plan. And, it, and it's pretty clear. It's in every message. But in every message, we also get this. Let's go to the next one. This is the second half of that first verse. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put him to death. The second sermon, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he was determined, when he was determined to let him go, you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And then to the Sanhedrin he said, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you today. You guys feel the tension? We've got, on one hand, this is God's plan. God does this thing. This is God's work. And then every time Peter preaches, he says, you guys did this. This is on you. And, so we, and this is a tension that has been around for 2,000 years. Theologians have wrestled over this one and divided. There's pretty clean lines in the church theologically between those that believe heavily in kind of the foreknowledge and the predestination of God and those that believe strongly in the free will of man to do whatever he wants. And we just sit in the tension of those. And I'm not even going to come close to trying to answer that tonight. <laughs> There's just nothing. 2,000 years we've worked on this one and haven't really gotten far. This is just where we sit. And, it's, and, it's, and we, have to, we have to embrace both. We have to embrace both because we have to know that what we do matters. The bad things we do, they matter. They have consequences. They hurt people. The good that we do matters. When there's someone that needs help, when there are groups of people that are being oppressed and we stand up for them, that matters. It changes things. It helps things. That is our calling to do those things. And yet at the same time, this is God's work. It's not our work. We're just joining him in something he's already doing. If we decide not to do it, he'll find someone else to do it. And we just sit in that tension of knowing that it's that we're supposed to put all of our heart and all of our effort and everything that we are into this thing because it matters. And at the same time, it's all on God. And that's just where we sit in the tension. And we're not going to answer that. We're just going to sit in it. Let's go ahead and go to that next passage. We're just going to sit there right in the middle of it, all being according to God's will and it all being according to our will. So who did it? Let's go one more. Did God do it or did we do it? The answer is Yes. We're catching on. We're catching on. So, that's our tension point for today. And it's showing up and it's going to continue to show up. It's in almost every time they talk. That, and they don't seem to find a contradiction in it. They have no trouble saying this was all God's plan. It was, it was predestined ages before. And shame on you for doing it. <laughs> I'm not going to try to answer it. So today, what we're actually going to get into is the Sanhedrin. And before we can do this, we've got to get in a little bit of history. The Sanhedrin um, actually shows up. You can go ahead and go to the next passage. Uh, in the Talmud, they talk about, the, which is the rabbinical commentaries on the Torah, 
they talk about um, the Sanhedrin being installed by Ezra. They say Ezra, um, when, he, when they came out of Babylon and set, rebuilt the temple and he kind of read the law to them, they said Ezra was throwing back to Moses when Moses had his conversation with Jethro. And Jethro was like, you're doing way too much. You need to um, assign helpers. And Moses picked 70 elders to kind of be broken up amongst the people to help him do the work. And so the Sanhedrin always had about 70 people, anywhere from there were times when it got as low as like 50, and then there were times, a couple of times when there was 71 on the books. So most people, the, the rabbis, rabbinical history says that it started with Ezra, but um, they don't show up in any, any Jewish history, like uh, secular history, until about 200. And this is when it gets really important, which is I think is why it started kind of coming on the map for uh, the historians, because if you remember when we did kind of that intertestamental history a few weeks ago, um, 200 was about when the Seleucid Empire conquered Jerusalem, conquered Israel for good. And they were, they were Hellenizing or bringing in the, uh, the, the Greek and Roman influence into Israel, and it created this huge social uh, war, really, this culture war, in Israel, where you had the one side that was all for bringing in these new influences, and they grew in to become the Sadducees and some of the scribes, and then you had the other side that was kind of the more conservative side, wanted to stick with the Torah as the actual uh, law, not just the religious book, but the actual law by which Israel would be governed. They would get that from the Torah and from the Levitical code, and they were the influence of the Seleucids really brought this to a head. So these guys are, are really going at it. And the temple comes into play here because when they came out of captivity, while they were in captivity, they didn't have a temple. They had synagogues. We talked about this too. And so the two camps kind of started to, to divide where the, the Hellenizers, the Sadducees, and the scribes and some of the, the leaders would, would kind of center their power in the temple and the Pharisees would general, generally teach the Torah in the synagogue, and you kind of have to now have these two influences in their faith. And Epiphanes, uh, Antiochus of the Seleucid Empire, he came in and tried to co-opt the temple, basically, the, the high priest. He took Onias III and removed him from the temple and put uh, Jason in its place. And that was the first time you now have a real power head. And then when the Maccabees threw him out, Judas Maccabee dies. He had already put his brother Jonathan as high priest, and they don't assign a new king. The high priest just becomes king. And so the temple is now the political and religious center of Israel. That's the big thing. Is this isn't just a political or just a religious group. This isn't like going before the elders of your church with something. This is a this is a legal proceeding. In fact, up until 30 AD, um, these guys had the power to, for capital punishment. That was taken away from them right about 30 AD, which is why they don't actually kill Jesus. They have to take him before Herod and Pontius Pilate to get him crucified. Uh, three years earlier, they could have just done it themselves. They, they didn't lose that privilege. Rome took that privilege away from them around 30 AD. But when Pompey the Great conquered um, Jerusalem, he marveled, there's one of the historians say he marveled at the walls of Jerusalem and, and basically said, I could, I'll never get in there. I just don't have the manpower to get in there. And so there was a battle between high priests. They had kind of, two families had kind of overthrown each other a couple times. And so he, um, the guy's name was uh, 
Hyrcanus or Hyrcanus uh, was one of the high priests, and he co-opted this guy to go in and open the gates for him, and he did it so that he could be the high priest. He actually opened the gates for Pompey the Great to conquer Jerusalem, so that was actually an inside job. That's how he got in. And then when um, uh, Herod the Great becomes the ruler, he uh, he used the high priest kind of as his man because he was an outsider. He knew that the people wouldn't listen to him as well. He always co-opted the high priest to do his work for him. So for a while now, really about a hundred years, uh, the high priest's office has been a political office more than a religious office. And this is who Peter and John are now called before. So don't think of this as like a religious moment this is a legal moment. This is this is legality. They have the right. And you got to remember, two months ago, this is the same group of guys that tried Jesus. And when they didn't like what they heard, they sent him to Herod. And so this, these are the exact same people, uh, the exact same guys. Ananias and Caiaphas were the same. Ananias was actually had been the high priest, and then Rome uh, removed him and. So he is, his son-in-law became high priest, and so he's basically still ruling through his son-in-law. So it's kind of funny if you look at the histories, Rome doesn't consider him the high priest, but every Jewish historian does, which is why this says uh, Annas the high priest. Um, Caiaphas was actually the high priest, it's interesting. But So in this passage, they're taken before this group. And the language kind of bears out that this is a legal thing. Um, if you look at, at what it kind of says here, Let's go on to the next one. This is then Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people. So these are like, these are leaders and rulers and elders of Israel. If we this day are being judged, it's for a good deed done to a helpless man. And back then, judged wasn't like us. Like, don't judge me. That wasn't a thing. Judgment, judge, like before a judge. Like it was a legal word, not a, you know, not like a, don't, don't tell me I'm, you know, doing something wrong. It was a, so when he says, we're being judged, he means legally. Like, they have the power to kill them here. Or not kill them, they would have to send them on. But um, let's go to the next one. And there's another word, another big word here that we want to talk about. This is a stone which was rejected by our builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is another name under heaven by which we can be saved. If you go back to Peter's other messages, he hasn't used this word yet. This word, has, salvation hasn't shown up yet. This isn't a religious word yet. This, is a, this means deliver us, um, free us. Uh, uh, it can be, it can be, it's used a couple times for healing, and, and, uh, and there's another word. I could, it's not coming to me. But this is, a, uh, this is Hosanna. When, they, when Jesus is coming in, they're like, Hosanna, Hosanna. That's a military word. That's like, save us now is what it means. It, uh, the Greek is, has a now basically on the end of it. Save us now. And it means like free us, SOS, like we're, we're in big trouble, save us. This isn't, there's no religious connotation yet. It's not like eternal salvation for my soul. This is, I'm drowning, somebody grab me. And so when Peter says here, there's no, salva- there's no salvation in the other, no other name by which we can be saved, he means, basically what he's saying is, is you guys have no power over us. You can't save us. This court is, is a joke um, because Jesus saves, and meaning literally, physically saves in a situation like this, not the, the Sanhedrin. So this is not a, uh, he's not being like, 
what we would consider religious with them. And this is the group that just killed Jesus. So this, is, this group would recognize this, and they actually say it in the next passage. Let's go to the next one. They've, because this is, a, this is a group that uses fear as basically their weapon, and they say, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and realized they had been with Jesus. So two months ago, this group has seen this kind of bravery before. Remember? Like they've seen this, this kind of spirit and this attitude, and it strikes something. They're like, because they're used to, and it's 70 guys. Like this is a, you're stand, two guys standing there, and they would put them in a, like a half circle, and you stood in the middle. It would have been a very intimidating atmosphere. And usually when you bring commoners in, they just cower in this moment. And they bring Peter and John in, and, they, and the very first thing they say is, you can't save us or, or take us. Only Jesus can do that. And they just recognize this confidence, and something in them goes, oh, man, they've been with Jesus. Like, we've seen this before. We recognize this confidence. And what's funny is when you read this, there's a guy who had been lame for 40 years, healed. And what they seem to be shocked by is that there's these two guys that are standing up in front of them boldly. Like, and, like they don't, like, you never see them even freak out a little bit. Like, nobody thinks, to, out of these 70 guys, nobody goes, they healed a dude. Should we talk about this? Should we, should we like, is something happening here? They just kind of ignore that fact. And it's, if anything, it's an inconvenience to them. They're like, well, we can't kill him. They healed a guy. They're, so they, they're shocked. What they're really reacting to is the attitude of, of Peter and John, which sets off our, our topic, and this is a big one, fear. Let's go to the next slide. Fear is a primary emotion. We've got, some people say four, some people say six, primary emotions, which means if you take an emotion, you kind of boil it down. A lot of them at their base are fear. Uh, I think happiness or joy is one of them. Like We've got these four to six, depending on who you listen to, kind of base primary emotions that kind of branch out and, and show up in a lot of different ways. And fear is one of those. And it's actually, I was going to do kind of a big thing on fear, and it's not a tough thing to study. They've done a million studies, and part of it is because we have some ethics in our science, you can't just scare the crap out of people and then take notes on what they do. I mean, you can a little bit, but not like make them literally think they're going to die like in the lab. So it's a little tough to study. So most of our studies are done on animals and uh, and lab rats and stuff, but it comes from the amygdala deep inside the brain, like in one of the most primitive parts of the brain. And it's tricky because it affects almost all of our thinking to the point that we have what they consider to be rational fears. You know, so if a, a poisonous snake or a grizzly bear comes up to you and you turn to run, that's a good thing. That's not a bad fear, and you can't say that that's evil. That's a, that's a, they consider that a rational fear to be, you know, if someone's walking on the edge of a building and you're one of those people that's like, oh, God, I can't even watch. That's considered rational. And then they have irrational fears, which there's nothing to be scared of, but we're scared anyway, phobias and things. And the center of the brain where that comes from seems to be the same. And then they have um, uh, what are considered to be uh, conditioned, uh, instinctive fears where uh, the ones we seem to be born with, if a brand-new baby and you make a loud clap like everything in them, makes a fear response, and, and when they do that, it's the amygdala that lights up. Somehow in them, they know 
danger, danger, and it's instinctive. We also have conditioned fears where you can train somebody to be scared of you. If you do the same thing over and over again, they get scared of that motion. So it's a really tough emotion to, um, to test and to, and to learn about. But the one test I did find that I thought was fascinating was they, they've done it, they've repeated it on several different animals, where if they put in a, a continued um, painful stimulus um, over and over again, just it's just unexpected, they can't, non-predictable, nothing they can do, you just um, shock them every once in a while. They notice that any, any animal that begins to have something to constantly fear always has two responses. Um, lack of socialization, they almost always leave the rest of the pack and, and, and completely um, isolate themselves. And lack of exploration, they stop caring about anything else. So you can put them in a place where they would normally go and like look at all the corners or anything else. If they're living in fear, they, they don't do that. They just put them in the cage and just sit, just waiting for the next shock. And it was kind of, it was kind of telling. Um, and the study showed several different animals that they ran through the pretty much exact same procedure, and they all do that. Lack of socialization, lack of exploration. Um, when they're, once they've established a pattern of fear, and so fear shows up in our spiritual lives all the time, and it's kind of a big one because it's, we're told to fear God, which I think is a rational fear, and we try and talk our way out of that, like, well, it's more like awe and reverence, and, but the, the Old Testament's pretty clear that we should fear God. If we're going to be afraid of anything, if we're going to be afraid of anyone's opinion of us, it should be God's. Um, and then we're also told not to have a spirit of fear, like that somehow fear can become poisonous, and ruin our spiritual lives. And what's interesting is, is when we look at the passages where fear is kind of pointed out, fear starts to look more like what we call unbelief. We call doubt and unbelief like it's a, um, it's a rational thing, but most of the places it shows up, like I've got one verse, let's go to the next passage. This is when Peter's walked, you know, actually taking the step to get out of the boat and walk on the water, and he's doing it. He's on the water. And it says, when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. Fear hits him. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? So Jesus sees fear and he doesn't say, Why are you afraid? Why did you fear? He takes fear and he turns it to its opposite, which is lack of faith. And so this thing that we usually call doubt or unbelief, which I think is usually pretty tied to belief, um, usually belief and doubt are usually pretty close to each other. He calls the opposite of faith, not unbelief, but, but fear. And then we have a famous story, and this one would have been in the, really in the psyche of any Jew of the day. And this is the spies that went into, um, and this is, there's kind of an interesting thing going on because I've been kind of following, and we're going to see where it goes because I really haven't looked ahead because I don't want to yet too far, but Jesus is crucified, which happens on Passover. Fifty days later, um, Moses is at Sinai, and uh, God comes down and gives him the law, and the fire falls on the mountain. Fifty days after Jesus is crucified, the fire falls on the upper room, and then the very next thing from Sinai, they send in the spies into Israel, and they come back afraid. They come back scared. This is that ten of them, let's go to the next passage. This is the ten of these spies, but Joshua, the son of Anakim, these are the two that weren't afraid. Uh, son of Jephunneh, who were among those 
and the spies of the land tore their clothes and spoke out to the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us to the land and give it to us, the land that flows with milk and honey. And we do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And this was a big story for any Jew, obviously. This is, and this led to the 40 years in the wilderness. And so there, so we've got kind of these two fear stories that come up next in the narrative, where we've got Peter and John, who are confronted with this kind of tyrannical group that was used to, to fear. They used fear for control and power. That's how they, they really didn't, they were really toothless. I mean, they, they could take people to Herod, but other than that, there wasn't much they could do, but everybody feared them. It was their weapon. But Peter and John don't give in to that. So let's go to the next one. We talked about this. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they recognized they had been with Jesus. And this is, a, this is kind of a powerful verse because... Um, Jesus' name was everywhere at the time. He had like had a huge splash. When Jesus shows up to the the two apostles on the, the uh, Emmaus Road, and he's like, what are you guys doing? They're like, what are you doing? There's only one thing going on right now. Are you not from here? Like, the whole world just blew up. They crucified Jesus. And so this is a big name. And so when they say they had been with Jesus, this is deeper than just they recognize that these guys were... Uh, you know, knew about Jesus. There's a there's a deeper thing in this with here that they were like Jesus. So this would be like uh, the Greek here is more like a husband and wife, a husband being with his wife. Like there's a a unity and a oneness. The, the Sanhedrin here sees more than just people who are influenced by Jesus. They see Jesus. Like they're seeing these guys are like almost like unified with Jesus. And what happens next is actually a little bit comical because we get to see what, like, toothlessness, like what, I guess, fear looks like when you don't own it. Uh, let's go to the next passage. He says, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no other way they could punish them because the people, because the people, since they were, they all glorified God for what had been done. They're just powerless. There's just nothing they can do. Their whole game... Their whole plan was to scare them, and to, and just to, and they just assumed that if they scared Peter and John, they'd quit. Like that was the, that was their whole weapon. And we get to see how lame it was when they don't get into it. When they, because just before this, you know, they were like, "Hey, I just want you to know, only Jesus can save us. He's the only one we're concerned about. He he decides if we live or die, not you." And they and. The whole thing just kind of dies, and so they basically threaten them a little more and let them go. Like there was nothing that could happen. And this is a huge thing as we face fear because it's huge when we're looking at it. It's always scary when we're looking at it. And then when we don't give into it, we usually find out it was all bluff. It was all smoke and mirrors. Let's go to the next slide. So how do we handle our fear? Because it says they threatened them, told them not, not don't do this anymore. They tried to up the ante a little bit. No more speaking in the name of Jesus. And here's what their response was. And being let go, they went to their own companions 
and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and seas and all that's in them. The first thing they did was they ran back to their people. They, and this is huge. We saw it in the animals. Like, usually when fear hits, we isolate. And so their very first move is to get back in community. They're scared, and they run back to their people, and they share, and they're authentic, and they say, here's what's facing us. They, they run and tell the story. The second thing is they all turn to God together. And this is a move we have to regain because we don't do this. We're going to talk about that in a second. Let's go to the next part. The next thing they do, they said, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness we might speak the word of God by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through your holy servant, Jesus. So the next thing they did was, they, and if you, as we follow the story, they went around doing great stuff, healing people, feeding people, like, and, and signs and wonders in the book of Acts aren't like the Exodus. This isn't like they're calling down lightning bolts and doing magic shows. Their signs and wonders made the world a better place. There was, there was a time when Paul goes in somewhere and like everybody on the island is healed when he leaves. Like everybody's healthy. Like they just, so it's like the kingdom of God is rolling through and making a difference. It's like changing things. This isn't signs and wonders like, hey, look at me, my God is awesome. This is signs and wonders like, I mean, we, and we read that passage a couple weeks ago from, uh, from the uh, Julius. I don't think I have the right name there. Uh, from the emperor just before Constantine. When he was like, if we would take care of our poor, we'd probably be able to shut the Christians down because they take care of their poor and our poor. It's like everybody knows who to go to if they need something. Go to a Christian. They're going to take care of you. Like, so they're like, that was the image they had. That you, they're just rolling through and making the world better. So let's talk about what that means to us. We run to our people. We run to our God. And we go about doing good. Healing the land. I'm going to step on some toes here. Because <laughs> in our response, here's what I want us to think about. The church has lost this move. We are just dominated by fear. And I think a lot of it comes from our politics. Don't throw anything at me. But we hear that this person might get elected, and we fear, and we're scared. What's going to happen? What happens if they get elected? What happens if... They let that group get the rights they want. What happens? Ah, does the church fall apart? Like, we, It's like we just can't handle. And, and these are people, Peter and John are confronted with, stop talking about Jesus or we will kill you. And they don't fear that. And we can't handle, my opponent might get elected. Like we're just, We just live in this constant state of, if everything doesn't go my way, if I'm not given all my my rights and privileges and everything I need, then everything might fall apart. And, and more than that, what's worse than that is, is our move is when something is threatened, when something is taken away. We, instead of running to our people and running to our God and deciding, fine, if they take that away, then our church will do good. We'll just, we'll go through the land and heal and do signs and wonders. What we do is we turn to our politicians and we redouble our effort to get our guy elected. And we redouble our presence on Facebook and enter more debates. And we, and we go to the wrong source of power, which just takes us back to 
our tension point of the day, which is God is in control. This is God's story. And it's scary because our kids are watching. Like our kids are watching how we interact with our politics. And our kids are scared of people that, that they don't even understand. Like we're, and we're just spreading this, this atmosphere of fear in the one place that it shouldn't exist. In the one place where our prayer should be, God, just grant us boldness. And not boldness like this brash, just walk around, but boldness like, you know, when everything goes nuts in Washington, the Christian is standing there going, it's going to be okay. The kingdom of God is doing just fine. We're going to keep advancing. We're going to keep healing. We're going to keep like impacting the world for good. Because that's where our power is. Not in Washington. We can't do anything there. So I guarantee if, you're, if your guy wins, he's a crook too. <laughs> our power is we stick together with one another. And not just this little group, but the church in general. That's why we've been praying for the churches in the area. I want them to do awesome. We need churches to succeed, all churches. We stick to each other. And then we corporately go to God and say, God, you hear the craziness going on. You hear what's happening up there. That's what they, I mean, Peter says when he starts this, the prayer, he says, God, you're the one who said, why do the nations rage and just plan nutty stuff? It does no good. And I'm not saying to completely disengage from politics. We're Americans too. Like we're not, and we live in a country where, in, where we are invited to make a difference and engage, and that's a healthy thing. But we can't do it in fear. We can't. It changes the whole thing. There, what, what, talking about boldness, we talked about a couple weeks ago the historians that wrote about Christians for those first three centuries, when they pull up their writings, you guys remember the three things they said were hugely impactful? They took care of more people than anybody else took care of. They um, were more inclusive than anybody else was. Religion at that day was by nature divisive. Christians would let anybody in. And the third one was they died better than anybody else. They were, and most of the stories were about that. They were the ones that marched into the Colosseum holding hands while the lions rushed at them. And they would just sing hymns and hold hands while they were eaten. Like, and we've lost something that we think Washington can give us anything. That's our faith. That's the faith we need. When we talk about faith in Jesus, it's not this like ethereal, like, you know, I, I, I assent to this religious concept, you know, that he did something a long time ago and because of that and because I'm agreeing that that happened way back there, I get to I get out of jail free card someday. And faith is saying God has this. God has this and living in that. That's faith in Jesus. That's the faith in Jesus the church needs right now. So we stick to each other. We stick to God. And we do good. We go into the world and we make a difference.